Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. The purpose of our Where's the Love series is to look at topics that cause angst and pain and division today and explore how Jesus and the Bible can actually help us change the tone of the conversation and maybe change our perspective in a healthy way. So in message one, we looked at how seeing each person as bearers of the image of God changes the way we impact, it impacts our relationships, it shapes the way we look at social issues, and last week we looked at the culture of outrage, and we talked about anger and how anger can either destroy us in our relationships or it can be actually be used to save us and save others. So today, Whereas Love is going to lead us to the topic of marriage, and so much of what we're talking about today is purely great, great friendship stuff. So in the midst of, for some of you who are, who are, are not married right now and all the feelings that that may spark for you, uh, there's really good stuff in this message for you as well. And those of you who are divorced or, or remarried or maybe you're walking through a particularly p- p- painful time in your marriage, can I just in- encourage you, let's keep the focus now and moving forward. I don't want anything said in this message to bring any sense of condemnation or guilt to your life. I, I want it to be the, give, have the possibility of increasing hope and strength to just, from where you're at, move forward today. The Bible in actuality was re- really revolutionary in its day and is still revolutionary today in how it elevates love and respect and the purpose of marriage beyond the culture of the time. And interestingly enough, it also elevated greatly the respect and purpose for even lifelong signalness as well. So the way we're going to talk about this topic today is we're going to talk about some cultural myths about marriage. We're going to talk about how the concept of marriage has changed in our culture. And we're going to discuss uh, what Christian marriage really means. And then we're going to end with just a couple of skills to help us walk out that kind of love in our lives, in our marriages, in our friendships. Now, when it comes to a message on relationships, Wendy reminded me, you'll often hear women say, yay, and then the men will go, but I was planning on watching football and this afternoon's going to be just a really long conversation, so thanks a lot, Ross. But relationships and marriages are a foundational layer of church and society and life. And I want to talk about that today, partially because what I hear about the way people feel about marriage in our culture today, which I think is captured, a portion of it is significantly captured in this one Facebook post that a woman posted. She said, I went into marriage with the mindset of for better or for divorce. For 11 years, she says, I've lived with one foot in and one foot out. As you can imagine, that doesn't bode well. It doesn't develop security or trust or intimacy for that matter. It's not because, she says, I, it's not because I don't want to be with him. It's a defense mechanism that I've created against him. I love my husband. I want to fight for our marriage and our family. But I've let past hurts and habits and hang-ups get in the way of that. And she, a little later, goes on to say, I'm here also to say that hard work pays off. It's not fun, and I'm, we're nowhere near fixed, but we're moving toward a closeness that we've never had, and I'm hopeful, and that's incredible, she says. Now, people may not explicitly say for better or for divorce, but that's what many people feel down inside. I've, I've always got a way out. I'm never fully in. 
And not surprisingly, American culture, marriage popularity is on the decline. People are actually getting married later in life, and fewer people are getting married. Tara Parker Pope, in an article entitled The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage, captures, I think, one prominent attitude towards marriage. She writes, a lasting marriage does not always signal a happy marriage. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in the modern relationships, people are looking for partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting. In other words, she goes on to say, we want marriages that help us individually achieve more personal goals, greater personal satisfaction, and we want passionate romance. This is often contrasted unfairly in some respects to the more traditional view of marriage, which is often painted as oppressive and passionately boring. But the attitude of a self-fulfillment marriage has actually led our culture, research is showing, to increased pressure on marriage. It's a significant reason behind the decline of the number of people getting married and people getting married later. The University of Virginia National Marriage Project's research noted that the number one thing people say they want to pursue in selecting a marriage partner is compatibility. And that research said that compatibility is defined by many things, but above all, that means that someone is willing to take them as they are and not change them. In other words, if you're truly compatible, you aren't going to need to change much. Well, with two imperfect people marrying and thinking that they should not be asked to change, that, that just destines any marriage for crushing disappointment and conflict. See, current expectations of marriage are actually more idealistic than they ever have been and ironically created greater pessimism towards marriage, especially lifelong marriage. The result is more people are living together before marriage, testing the waters before committing, if they ever do commit. And then there's that whole gloomy picture of marriage that is often quoted of 50% of marriages will end in divorce. It leaves us all thinking very few married people are happy. Divorced people are happier than those who stay in troubled marriages. Living together either before marriage or in lieu of marriage is much better. I must find someone who is compatible who won't ask me to change much. My spouse must make me feel better about my life and my personal goals and, or divorce is a better option. And if we're really compatible, then marriage should be easy. But here's the deal. Research doesn't bear out not a single one of those statements to be true. They're cultural myths. Yet research is providing mounting evidence for the benefits of happy and the happiness of lifelong monogamous marriage. The study has more recently have dissected more carefully the divorce rates. And among the first-time marriages, uh, divorce rates are 39% or lower. Among Christians who regularly attend a church, the divorce rate is 35% lower than the national average. Interestingly, uh, among nominal cultural Christians, those who attend church only occasionally, the divorce rate is 20% higher than the national average. That's interesting. Those who get married older, those who have better educations, those who wait to have kids after marriage, those who marry relatively close to their same age, all of those factors predict a lower divorce rate, which means most of the people in this room have a very, very low chance indeed of divorce. Further, 
In America, the percentage of couples who don't just say they are happy, they say they are very happy in their marriages, has remained consistently right at about 61-62% of married couples. See, overwhelmingly, research shows that those who are married are much, much happier than those who are cohabitating or single or divorced. And according to the research, and by the way, the Bible also, if you want a happy, enduring marriage, be a follower of Jesus, attend church regularly, get a good education, don't marry before age 21, don't live together before marriage, don't have sex or children before marriage, marry someone who is close to your age, and all of those factors will dramatically decrease the likelihood of divorce and greatly increase the likelihood of happy, lifelong marriage. So what makes a Christian marriage different? Well, it starts with the idea of covenant. We're going to start looking at that by looking at four distinctions of covenantal love. First, covenant is the unbreakable commitment binding one's destiny to another. Now, before we say any more, doesn't that sound like a great definition of love? Isn't that what we're really looking for, faithful love? with a person who will love me even when I am not lovable? The first marriage covenant is uh, in Genesis 2 and describes it this way. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. Unashamed, vulnerable openness. It's beautiful. It's what our hearts long for. There was a published interview a while back uh, about open marriages, marriages where they still engage with sex knowingly with other people than their spouse. And even the person advocating for open marriage in the interview, when asked, admitted and said it doesn't feel good, it hurts when her spouse has sex with another person. I mean, society can try to rewrite the feelings, we can try to redefine it, but we all know what we really want is unconditional, committed love, where we can feel safe to be who we are, always believed in, and encouraged to become all we can become. See, that's the reason people who live together for a long time before marriage, when they go through getting actually married, experience the same stress as newlyweds when they decide to get married. It's because until that binding commitment is there, you will always be selling yourself to the other person and hiding a part of who you are. See, even our most natural longings and definitions of love point to deep, committed, covenantal marriage as being good and right. Second, covenant starts with God and His love. Covenant is all throughout the Bible. In fact, the word testament, as in Old and New Testament, is another word for covenant. Covenant is always involves God. It's, it's motivated by trust in God's love, His power in God's ways. And covenants are initiated by God with individuals and families and nations. And we also see covenants in the Bible between people like David and Jonathan. In fact, when we choose to follow God in baptism, baptism is actually a covenant. I'm actually really thrilled we get to celebrate baptism with a number of people next week. And if you're still even considering that, just... Call me, text me, grab me after service. Let's set a time to get together and talk about that. Covenantal commitment is what makes something holy and beautiful. And it's also something God's power gets behind. That's the reason marriage vows, at least in the Christian tradition, acknowledge that we are making our vows before God. 
Which leads us to the third truth about covenant and marriage. Covenant is action leading our feelings. It's fairly fair to say that a primary motivation today in our culture is that our feelings lead our actions. Feelings lead our actions in identity and love in lots of different areas in our culture today, for better or for divorce. Few give up in a marriage, obviously, without a fight. I, I recognize that. There's always a fight for the relationship in most relationships. But covenant goes beyond that. It finishes the commitment. That's the reason Paul talks about marriage in the context of how great Jesus' love is. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the words that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The same can be true of a set of wives. We are all called to love like Jesus. It can be said about our friendships even. We are called to love like Jesus. So how did Jesus love? Well, he loved to death. He loved us to death. He loved us when we were irresponsible, when we were lying to Him, when we were accusing Him unjustly. He loved us when we were weak and sick. He loved us even when we turned on Him. Certainly, this kind of love doesn't sound like the me-first kind of love, romantic, passionate, feel-better-about-myself kind of love. But the truth is, what love really is, this laying down your life to bring out the best in another, to win the heart and life of another, that has always been our most classic definition of love. It's the reason we honor veterans on Memorial Day who gave up their life for us, right? It is the definition, the ultimate definition of love. But it's not feelings driving love. Rather, it's sacrificial commitment to act loving even when we don't feel like it. See, this is the reason long-term studies actually show that if there's not violence going on in the marriage, that two-thirds of unhappy marriages will, if they just stick together, will be happy in five years. It's the power of committed sacrificial love. And choosing divorce stacks the odds against you. Because second marriage is divorce at a rate of 60%, and third marriage is divorce at, at nearly 75% rate. This is why the Bible teaches divorce is permissible only for things that grossly breach the covenant. And permissible is not a command to divorce. It is a merciful recognition on God's part that it might be too difficult to stay in the marriage and might be best to end it. See, the things the Bible talks about that are a breach of the covenant are Matthew 19, sexual unfaithfulness, adultery in the marriage, breaking the oneness of the covenant. Paul adds to that abandonment or sometimes referred to as willful desertion in 1 Corinthians 7. When the other person simply will not agree to stay, there's not a lot you can do about it. You are free. And Malachi refers to violence in the, in the marriage as evidence of breaking of the covenant. He's talking about the breaking of the covenant and talks about violence there. Yet even then, in circumstances like that, I've seen marriages in my life turn around and thrive. The power of committed love and forgiveness is one of the most beautiful, powerful forces on the earth. See, if you divorce for a reason other than this, Forgiveness and redemption are real, powerful things. Receive it and move forward. Okay? And if you took the justifiable out in a marriage, don't live with guilt over thinking, well, maybe I should have been the exception who just stuck it out anyway. 
Don't, don't go there. Just trust God. He loves you. He's good. He's got a good plan for you. Let's just move forward. But without covenantal love, life is lived with one foot in and one foot out. And fourth, covenant is a promise of future love, not present passion. Uh, that's what we do in marriage ceremonies. That's what it's all about. When I conduct a marriage, I'm fine with people writing their own vows. But if it's a Christian marriage, their vows can't just be, you complete me, your love is so amazing to me, you see me for who I really am and you love me. Those are all nice things to say, but it's got to be more than that. First of all, no one getting married really sees their spouse as they are. That's the reason I love one of Tim Keller's book on marriage. It has a chapter on love the stranger. In reality, when we first get married, we are all strangers to one another. The reason, the mo that's the reason the most commonly occurring times for divorce take place at year two, year seven, and somewhere around year 30. It takes a couple of years usually for the pain of the stranger coming out and this person we married to be enough to me want to abandon, abandon the marriage. If we make it past that, but things aren't dealt with really well, then it takes about seven years for the bitterness to build enough that we choose divorce. And if it doesn't happen then, it's most likely to happen around empty nest time. See, your vows are a promise to love in the future. Until we learn to love through difficulty, when we really know our spouse, not just the best foot forward, even when this life is not hot and passionate and full of exciting romance, only then do we learn what love really, really is and its depth and its security and its beauty. W.H. Auden, an English-American poet, wrote in one of his last books called A Certain World, he says, like everything which is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. One of the arguments today about compatibility is that marriage, if we're compatible, things must be easy. But, but where did that idea come from? I mean, that we won't have serious fights or, or that we'll easily kiss and make up? What, what is that? Where, where is it written that negative feelings toward your partner mean it was a mistake that it can't be fixed? That it has to be easy? I mean, ask, ask Justin Fields, J.K. Dobbins, Seth Curry, LeBron. Was becoming something great easy? Any successful person who's built something meaningful and great, if you ask them, was it easy, they're going to say no. Was it worth it? A resounding yes. Why is it that we demand it or even expect a great marriage, a great love to be easy? In her book called Vow, A Memoir of Marriage and Other Affairs, Wendy Plump explores her own affairs and her husband's affairs and the importance of vows that we take. She acknowledges the nature of affairs by saying that the sex was great as a given. Passionate sex, the urgency, the newness, and the illicit nature of the affair practically guarantee that it's going to be that. But then she explores the pain that a lack of commitment to the marriage caused her, caused her ex, caused her children, caused their friends and family. And in the end, she essentially says, wouldn't you rather have 50 years of faithful love caring for you in the ups and the downs, in the passionate times, and in those times where the passion created craters and bombs instead of something more pleasant, but yet you find yourself once again loved faithfully 
and accepted in and even after the pain of conflict. Wouldn't you rather have that or would you rather have just a couple weeks of illicit thrill? Why do we need covenantal commitment that promises future love? Because when I married Wendy, as awesome as she is, I really had no idea what I was getting into, and nor did she. Nor does anyone. Wendy and I were both studying to be counselors, and we did our premarital counseling with one of the best premarital counselors in the area. I, I always said that I was the most patient, unflappable, always kind person, and then I got married. We're all blind. All blind, going into marriage. And in some ways, it's probably a good thing because we might have a lot fewer marriages if we didn't, but a good marriage, it's worth fighting for. And the pun is intended there. We long for love that knows us and accepts us fully. But here's the problem. When marriage brings difficult, painful stuff out, of, out in our lives, we tend to blame the marriage. But the truth is, marriage only uncovers the self-centeredness and sin that is already in us. Marriage is a lot like Cinderella's story. She magically goes to the ball, but at a certain hour, all of the glitter and glamour falls away. And the unfiltered you stands before everyone to be seen for who you really are. And that's really what marriage is and does. You finally have all the masks and all the makeup removed, and you are seen for who you really are. And it's an opportunity. It's a gift, really to be loved and truly loved for who you are, to finally live more authentically and experience the kind of love to help you move past your sin and your faults to be the really good person Jesus created you to be that you long to be and want to be. See, if our marriage is built on current feelings, we're doomed. If it's built on covenant promises of future love, then we actually find the safety, and it's going to be difficult, but we will find the safety to move forward and discover rich beauty in marriage. Which means there are going to be three qualities that you're going to need to develop in our marriages, and these also apply to really close friendships. The first quality we need is the power of truth, facing reality. What are the flaws that your spouse will see in you? Are you fearful? Are you proud? Are you selfish? Opinionated? Abrasive in certain circumstances? Are you oblivious or distracted or insensitive or maybe undisciplined? How do you deal with offense and bitterness? Are you greedy or needy? When you confront, do you hide and tell half-truths because it's too threatening? And again, it's not that marriage creates these things in you because it's just like you and I are like an old bridge over a stream that has structural defects and, and marriage is like a 20-ton Mack truck that when it drives onto the bridge, things, some things start to crack and maybe breaks even become evident. Why? Because the cracks and defects are already there. You just hadn't had anything weighty enough in your life to bring them out. See, love is this beautiful, weighty thing that we all long for. But its weight exposes the defects in each of us. Yet again, that's what we want, isn't it? To be truly loved for who we are. I mean, as followers of God, the Holy Spirit empowers us to go beyond our own abilities. And it says this in Hebrews 3 to us. It says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, by falsehood, truth, the bedrock of good friendship and great marriage. And yet that's only half the truth. The truth is, when you get married, you are going to see lots of impurities, lots of sin, lots of things going that need to be refined in your spouse. But there's also the truth of the gold that is there. And the second quality that shapes our perspective in marriage is the power of love to refine us. So when you see a part of him that you hate, the dross, remember that's not the gold that he is or will be. See, so often we focus on what God is in the process of removing from our lives, not on who He's made us to be and who He's making us to be in the future. See, the Apostle Paul talks about this reality in himself. He says in Romans 7, For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. We can all relate to that, right? Especially in marriage, you do things, you go, you go, I can't believe I ever was that. I just wish I'd never done that. Paul continues, he says, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. Now, Paul's not making an excuse here for himself. Because up to this point in Romans, Paul has systematically exposed the fact that all of us are sinful, all of us deserve damnation, and taking responsibility for our sin is the first step in receiving God's mercy and love. What Paul is illustrating here is the separation that love focuses on the gold of who we are becoming. He says it better in his love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. We want to say, yeah, that's right, you shouldn't treat me that way, you shouldn't dishonor me that way. But Paul goes on and says, love is also not easily angered. And we kind of go, oops, because we so easily get provoked to say, yeah, you shouldn't, right? It keeps no record of wrongs. Don't you wish that was easier to do in life? Don't you hate it when your spouse brings up all the stuff from the past? Don't you hate it when you do that? Because you know it's not loving and not right, but, but we do it anyway. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And here it is. Love is always, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. See, love sees the dross. It doesn't focus on it. Love focuses on the gold that is being refined in us, the gold that we are, that's just been damaged. That doesn't mean love ignores the dross. No, love tries to help remove it, bringing out the best in us, but love does what? Love never fails. Committed covenantal language, right? Truth is, we fail, but God's love and power doesn't. Each of us go through life hearing words and verdicts about who we are and who we aren't. Many good, many bad. But, but the, part, the person that's usually hardest on you is you. We have this never-ending loop of self-talk, berating ourselves, doubting ourselves. It's what drives our anxiety. It's what drives our fear. It's what drives our depression, our performance. It's what drives our relationships. You as a spouse are designed by God to be that person who comes into your husband's or wife's life and can, with God's help, correct that self-talk and those messages from the past. To point out the dross and encourage its removal and make the gold in them shine. 
See, when we settle for the thrill of passion and of not being asked to change, we settle for a counterfeit of love that's going to leave us bankrupt. But if we commit to one another to a covenantal love, man, what beauty can come out of our relationships. The third quality requires of us to also develop two skills. That quality is the power of grace to heal us. I'll be honest, after 33 years of marriage, I know more fully how much of a bum I am, how perfectly flawed and sinful I am. And I also know God's love more deeply than I ever did 33 years ago. Why? Because of my relationship with God and because of the way I've seen the grace and love of God given to me by Wendy. But that grace and forgiveness isn't ever truly expressed unless we face the truth. But neither can we actually face the truth without grace. So my uncle was a rock collector. I don't really understand rock collectors. I like to throw rocks, but I just don't understand going and searching for rocks. That just makes no sense to me. But he was a rock collector. And he was, I was in his garage one day and he showed me his rock tumbler. Uh, being in a rock tumbler is kind of like the truth of marriage. We're going to get close. We're going to see each other's faults. And we're going to crash into those faults on a regular basis with each other. A rock tumbler with just rocks in it doesn't do anything but chip and scar and damage the rocks even further. You actually have to add a grinding compound in order to soften the blows in that rock tumbler and allow the friction to instead polish and bring the beauty out of the rocks. And that's what grace is. It is the grinding compound. Proverbs tells us, iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. If we don't have conflict, if we don't have friction or pressure, we will not grow in life. But, grow with, but grace without truth isn't just denial. And grace must be combined with truth. And truth must be owned in order for it to have its effect. Owned truth defines the first skill of grace, which is the discipline and skill of repenting. See, repenting is our emotional and verbal wrestling with truth. In order to repent, you have to wrestle with the truth about yourself. I really was selfish. I really was bitter and angry. I really was insecure and offended. I really was neglectful. I really was wrong. See, often we're tempted, though, to stop at that level of repentance and simply ask forgiveness for our actions. The hard part of truly repenting is we need to also wrestle with the pain we caused God and our spouse or whoever we hurt and what our actions cost them. See, when I get angry at Wendy and I call her something vicious and ugly, I sin against her and I also sin against God. Remember a couple weeks ago, every one of us bears the image of God. If you were a parent, think about it this way. If you were a parent and you stood there and saw someone treating your kid like you sometimes treat your husband or wife, what would you feel? How offended would you feel? See, our sin toward others is always a sin against God, our Heavenly Father, as well. Until I understand that and repent of my bad behavior in marriage and how it offends God and what my misbehavior cost Wendy in terms of how it hurt her, how it made her less confident, how it made her struggle with bitterness, how it provoked her to sin, how it created sleeplessness for her, I have not fully repented. 
Now, most of the time, we don't see all those consequences. We don't even recognize them. But the process of healing and growth and getting rid of the, uh, the dross in your life and in your spouse's life requires us to process that level of repentance at least in time, over time. The second skill of grace is this, the discipline and skill of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a feeling. If we wait for the feeling, we will never forgive anything other than the, the simplest little slight. Forgiveness does not overlook the truth or keep silent about the truth, but forgiveness chooses to not hold the offense against the other person. Forgiveness doesn't even necessarily wait for an apology, which is hard, right? Especially when you've been married, you see the patterns of sin after year two or year 10 or year 20, year 30. Those patterns are well known and often very frustrating, if not outright painful. Forgiveness is not a one-time act. It is a posture. It is a repeated prayer, a willful, repeated act that we do. And that act may or may not ever fully remove the feelings of the hurt or offense. But forgiveness is a decision to love and extend grace, to pull in close to your spouse or whoever it is, offering relationship even when you feel like pulling away. To give and receive that kind of love <coughs> pardon me, is what cultivates the actual safety and security to even face the ugly truth about ourselves. Because without forgiveness, truth becomes harsh, hard, repelling, threatening, overwhelming, impossible to face. See, this is the reason last week's message on anger is so important. Many times when we talk to someone about how they have offended us and we ask them to repent or, or even when we're offering forgiveness, it is a way of us releasing our anger sideways to make them know and make them pay and it's not really a pure offer to forgive and restore because we're demanding something. So the question we ask ourselves when we forgive is, am I telling this truth? Am I forgiving for my sake or for their sake? Now certainly we've all heard that forgiveness is really more needful for your own sake, right? If you don't, you're going to live with bitterness and, and in some way the pain and offense will continue to control you. And so you must forgive other people or else it's going to, it's going to damage you. And all that's true. But to stop there falls far short of the forgiveness Jesus offers and the, the forgiveness Jesus is asking us to give. Jesus forgave without us being fully aware of how much we cost Him. Jesus forgives us and treats us as though we haven't sinned, even when we recognize only a small portion of that which we need forgiveness for. Loving like Jesus means we forgive like Jesus. We offer forgiveness even before somebody asks for it. That's what Jesus did. Not everyone receives it, but the offer is there. See, forgiveness becomes easier when we recognize the sin and dross will not always be there in our lives or our spouse's life. Forgiveness comes more easily when we keep this eternal perspective that God is one day going to remove that. That's not who they are. That stuff that's bothering us. The sin, the dross in our life will one day completely removed, leaving only the gold. See, in all of our relationships, that perspective is powerfully liberating and healing, especially so in marriage. 
The Apostle Paul talks about this very perspective in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so do, we do not lose heart. It's easy to lose heart in marriage, isn't it, sometimes? We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, and it can feel more than just a light momentary affliction sometimes in marriage, can it? This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, it's worth it. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That dross, that sin, that's not going to be there. It's transient. But all the things that are unseen are eternal. See, love in all of our relationships empowered by this eternal perspective helps us see the gold in the one we love and lets that begin to motivate our actions more than the dross, the sin, and the annoyance of that. Which Jesus says, again, will no longer be there someday. That's not who they are. See, that's the kind of love that that's worth the price. I think Tim Keller summarizes this whole message really well when he says this. He says, marriage has the unique power to show us the truth of who we really are. Marriage has the unique power to redeem our past and heal our self-image through love. And marriage has the unique power to show us the grace of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and says, Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that Jesus laid down his life for us, forgiving us at great cost to make us something beautiful. And we now get to do that for someone else. So where have you bought into the lies of our culture that say divorce is better when all the stats clearly show it isn't, that the odds if you divorce are stacked against you, and that if you just stick it out and stay in the marriage, the odds are very much in your favor that it will become a happy marriage even if you're unhappy now. Where have you allowed the feelings and desires to lead the way in your relationship rather than the covenantal love, the promise of future love? Where do you need to repent? And where do you need to forgive? Maybe again and again and again in your marriage. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, thank you for giving us this picture of love. I think every one of us can acknowledge, Lord, that we want that kind of love that accepts us as we are and challenges us and invites us and loves us in a way that we become everything we're supposed to be, but, it, but it's hard, God. And so often we choose instead to, to believe things that make us have an out or, or seem to make things either easier rather than, rather than pursuing that which you say is beautiful and powerful and lasting and awesome. And so God, I pray that wherever we're at now, here, whether single, married, in our relationships, whether it's our marriage relationship or friends or family, that you would, you would just come. And help us be the people who see the gold that you are bringing out of people, the gold that you have created them to be. And would you give us the ability to repent well and forgive really well so that the dross, the stuff that's no longer going to be a part of our lives as you remove it, doesn't have to be a barrier any longer to us being happy in a fulfilling relationship. So Lord, even as we turn now in worship, would your spirit come and would you touch those areas in our lives where we need to receive that grace from you? In Jesus' name, amen. Would you continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. 
If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.